0: The Old Testament book of Lamentations is one of those books, I would say, that's not often visited. It's one of the least visited books, I would say, and there's reason why, perhaps. Almost all of its words deal with dour sort of language. They have this very sort of depressing sort of outlook throughout each of its five chapters. You're no doubt familiar with the words that served as our scripture reading, verses 22 and 23, where it talks about the steadfast love that that greets us in the morning, the great faithfulness of our great God. These are verses, of course, that have been very familiar to the church for centuries. They are words that have served as the inspiration for countless pieces of Christian arts and and hymns and books, etc. That refrain. Great is thy faithfulness is, is repeated all the time in the church. And I think what's fascinating is that we repeat those words almost without realizing, almost without recognizing the, the horrible setting in which those words come from. To be sure, this was not a triumphant stanza The Jeremiah perhaps who, who wrote this particular chapter wasn't standing in triumph like we might when we sing, Great is thy faithfulness. In fact, this stanza, these words, these lines emerged from one of the deepest and darkest catastrophes to ever befall the people of God. Of course, these words were likely written in the near aftermath or the historical aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., Of course, if you remember history, you remember as we covered it in the books of Kings, this was that climactic event in which after long decades of rebellion and turning against the Lord, turning against Yahweh, Yahweh's own people are made to feel his withdrawal. They're made to feel this devastation. And indeed, this is a devastating piece of history. As it feels as if God has abandoned his people. It feels as if he has turned his back on them. That's what it felt like. Especially as, uh, it, as you would see if you, were, if you were an Israelite in those days. If you were part of the kingdom of Judah. It, it would be hard to believe otherwise. As you see Babylonian soldiers just running rampant throughout the streets. Wreaking havoc. Turning the city of God into rubble. And indeed, that's sort of what is captured by that painting that you have in front of you. It's a painting by Rembrandt, meant to capture just that. Jeremiah weeping over the assaults of Jerusalem. And that great painter uh, sort of captures that dejected, forlorn look of the prophet of God. As in the background, the embers of Jerusalem are burning You can imagine why. He's called the weeping prophet. Because of what he has seen. Because of what he has witnessed. Especially this. The fall of Jerusalem. That once sprawling magnificent city. That was meant to be what? An emblem of God's blessing. Again is now returned just to smoldering embers. It's it's turned just to ruin. I think it's worth mentioning uh, this fascinating detail about the scriptures. That the fall of Jerusalem is recorded no less than five times in the Old Testament, once in Second Kings, in Second Kings chapter twenty-five; again in Second Chronicles chapter thirty-six; Isaiah has it in Isaiah chapter twenty-nine; and Jeremiah has it twice, Jeremiah thirty-nine and chapter fifty-two. Five times we have this event recorded for us. If you you didn't get what I think God is trying to tell us, this is is the Bible's version of a flashing neon sign. Pay attention to this. I've recorded for you five times. You can't miss what's happening. (laughs) Judah is decimated as Israel was before them. And some of the people of Judah are hauled off as, as captors, as prisoners of war. They're hauled off to Babylon. Others, as you might remember, make that really fateful and tragic and ironic decision. That in the aftermath of this horrible siege, the, the best decision that they have come up with is that they're going to they're run off to Egypt. In a stunning reversal of the exodus, thousands of years before that, we have this reverse exodus. that They go back into Egypt for asylum from Babylon. Jeremiah, of course, was... Among that group that escaped to Egypt, not by his own choice. In fact, in chapter 42 of his prophecy, Jeremiah 42, he issues a very stern warning to those who think that this is a good idea, that we need to flee this ground. He says basically in those certain words, this is a bad option. And in fact, his contemporary, uh, the prophet Isaiah says the same thing twice in Isaiah chapter 30 and 31, nevertheless... Jeremiah is detained, he's taken to Egypt, where, as tradition says, he lives out the rest of his days until he was stoned to death for some of these very same messages. And many believe that it was during that exile in Egypt that he penned these words of lamentations. Words, again, as the title says, words of lament. As he's lamenting collectively and also personally over the great loss that everyone, his own nation, has just endured. Lamentations is a book of grief. Words that contain awful images, words that are despairing, that are discouraging, words that are desperate. No wonder why we don't often want to just pick up and read this book. And yet at the same time, in the midst of all of those words of dejection and sadness and sorrow and loss, at the very same time, there is an amazing amount of good news to be found right in the middle of all of that. Because even as Jeremiah is writing these words that should make our hearts break, and indeed probably made his break, even as he was writing it, even as he was lamenting these words, what's revealed in the midst of all of it is this incredible gospel of grief. The good news that we can find in the midst of it. I think this is especially true of chapter number three, in which Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, sort of lives up to his name, so to speak. He calls himself that in verse 1 of our text. If you notice, as he says, I am the man who has seen affliction. And he sort of gives voice to that affliction in painful detail throughout the rest of this particular chapter. Through this song that's full of sorrow. And yet in it, And through it, we are made to find that gospel of grief. And I think we're made to see it through three sort of phases, three sort of aspects. And I want you to see them this morning. The the gospel of grief sort of has three notes. The first note, if you will, is called the midnight. Part of the good news comes right here. First, you have to understand and accept and embrace the midnight. Part of the good news is accepting the bad news. And there's no worse news perhaps than what Jeremiah describes in the opening verses of this text. Chapter number 3. As what he does is he sort of takes the, the, the national pain that, that Judah has felt. And he puts it in the first person. As if he is sort of the representative of Judah if you will. He is this prophet who is now standing. and He personalizes all of the despair and desolation that Judah has gone through. And what he does, and I'm going to read these verses. What he does in these verses down through verse 16 is, is just give these painful sort of horrific images of what it has felt like. What it has looked like to endure the sorrow that they have all endured just recently. Notice what he says verse 1 I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath interesting let me just pause and I don't I'm not going to break every time I'm reading the verses but it's fascinating to to think about what he's saying in this little phrase rod is the same word that's used in that really comforting phrase from Psalm 23 thy rod and thy staff they comfort me Which is just getting us into these mind's eye that that Jeremiah, and, and I'm already kind of getting ahead of myself. Jeremiah sees the very rod that should have comforted them, as David said in Psalm 23. That same rod of the shepherd is now afflicting them. That's the type of turmoil that they are feeling. It seems as if God has turned on them. So much so that they are now under the rod of his wrath. And he says, He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, He turns His hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow And set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples. The object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He has made me cower in ashes. You want to talk about sorrow Jeremiah knows what it feels like and he's trying, you have to understand what he's doing. He is trying to use the most picturesque languages he can to make it so apparent what it has felt like to endure what they have all endured even just recently. It feels like they've been broken. It feels like they've been besieged. It feels like they've just been constantly beleaguered by constant wave after wave after wave of oppression and tribulation. It feels, as he says, that they've been enveloped, that they've been walled in, that they've been blocked on every single side. They are completely surrounded by desolation and despair. For Jeremiah, everywhere he looks, there's more and more reason to grow desperate. There's more and more reason to sink. And as he says, just cower in ashes, which is just an Old Testament way of saying to just get on the ground and get in the fetal position. This is Jeremiah, who is enduring in every single which way a miserable case of midnight sorrow. Suffering in the greatest degree perhaps we could ever imagine. And so pointed, so sharp is this grief and sorrow that he confesses those, those, uh, just, uh, those painful words, surprising words in verses 17 and 18. That he says, I've forgotten what happiness is. Verse 17. My soul is bereft, it's been cut off and depri- deprived of peace. So much so I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. My endurance is gone. I can't even move anymore. I can't even go on. My endurance has evaporated and so has my hope. It's vanished. It's gone. It's, it's just faded into thin air this is the hopelessness of judah this is the hopelessness that jeremiah is voicing into the into the night and i would say this is what suffering feels like but i would want to draw your attention because I think Jeremiah's confessions, surprising though they are, they are taken even more surprising, even more jagged sort of edge when you realize again that he sees God himself as the oppressor. He identifies God. If I'm not going to reread all the verses, but if I want you to take note and circle if you can. Or if you don't want to write in your Bible, just note it with your finger. <laughs> Nineteen times in verses 2 through 16, he refers to he, God, as the one who's doing all of this. Verse 2, he has driven. Verse 3, he turns his hand again. Verse four, he has made my flesh, he has broken my bones. Verse five, he has besieged and enveloped me, and on and on he goes, He, he, he is doing this. And each time, who is the he is God Himself. What makes this grievous situation? And circumstance, all the more grievous, all what makes Jeremiah's pain all the more painful is that it appears, it feels as if Yahweh is behind it. He's the one that's doing it. He seems to be the one that is is causing it. He seems as if he's turned against me. Again, going back to that imagery. He has been the good shepherd of his people. But suddenly that rod that was comforting his people has now turned wrathful. Has now turned vengeful. And that rod has now come and oppressed his people. It, turned, it seems as if God has turned his back on me. And that he's actually become the oppressor. So much so in verses 10 and 11. He compares them to the predators of bears and lions. Waiting to ambush its prey. Which of course is Jeremiah and Judah. They are the proverbial prey if you will. That gets torn to pieces. By the predator that's lying in Wait. What a hopeless circumstance. What a hopeless state of mind as Jeremiah voices the collective sort of feelings of the people of God. It feels as if, as he says in verses 12 and 13, that, it, that he has a target on his back. And that God has become like a sniper, like an archer who releases his arrow and it gets a kill shot. Right in his kidneys. This time of grief for Jeremiah is not random. It's not just something that comes about. It feels intentional. It's an archer aiming and loosing his arrow and is landing exactly where he wants it to. This is a purposeful moment of depression. A purposeful moment of despair it feels like. It's as if God has targeted every single pressure point and just grinded his hands into it. No wonder Jeremiah's hope had all but vanished. No wonder his thoughts, as he says in verses 19 and 20, are just filled with wormwood and gall. They're just filled with bitterness. That's all he can taste. This is all he seems to know. And in fact, that's what you we have to sort of see, and we get captured here in this mind's eye of Jeremiah that this this present sort of bitter moment has then therefore colored and tainted all of his past memories, as he says. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. I continually remember it. That's how I remember it. It's nothing but bitterness, nothing but sorrow. Nothing but suffering and grief. This is the midnight. This is Jeremiah's midnight moment in which everything feels dark. And I think we, we should and we might be taken aback by some of these things that Jeremiah is confessing. We might be surprised that he's putting pen to paper and saying these things. And I think that reveals to us something very specific. They are preserved, these words are preserved in Scripture for a very particular reason, I think. And I think it's to show us. I think it's to show us that God, Yahweh, Jehovah God, He can handle, He can handle our midnight cries. That's what He can handle. (laughs) You might think that you don't want to say to God what it feels like. He can handle what it feels like. When we're at our lowest, when we uh, are, are at our deepest and darkest moments of life, when everything seems to have gone off the rails, when everything seems to have gone dark, and it feels, as he says, and he confesses that we're just living in darkness without any light in sight, God wants to hear from us. Specifically in those moments, the midnight is not a time to go mute. Not a time to bottle up all of our grief and our anguish. It's a time to give voice to it, actually. It's a a time to give voice to what is grieving us, what is causing us pain. And in fact, that's the, the testimony of Scripture. The beloved testimony of the Bible is that it never encourages sufferers to bottle up their suffering and to keep it to themselves and to make sure that no one else sees, no one else knows, no one else should see what you're going through. It's never the testimony of the Bible. Ever. In fact, if you... Look at here, but the testimony of the Psalms especially, but everywhere in scriptures, it assures us what? That ours is a God who is powerful enough and he is patient enough to weather all of those midnight cries of misery and despair and sadness. When we feel at our most forlorn, God can handle it. He can weather it. Even when those cries seem to have him in the crosshairs of our grief, he can handle it. He can understand it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in one of those moments where it just feels as if everything is pointed against you? You're surrounded, you're enveloped, you are overcome with grief and sadness. And you cannot seem seem to get any other solution other than the fact that God has suddenly turned his back on you. The gospel of grief begins right there. Not at some other juncture, not at some other point. It begins right there in the midnight at the darkest of moments. That's where the good news rings out the loudest, rings out the truest. And That's where this God hears us. These words are spoken by the prophet, recorded in God's holy word. I think they're preserved for us to realize that, yeah, God can handle those midnight cries. He hears us and that's where he finds us. That's where the mercy of God meets us right there at midnight. And that brings me, number two, to the second note in this gospel of grief, of course, is the mercy. Because as stunning as Jeremiah's despair appears to be as he recounts it, as he relays it, as he shares it, I think perhaps what's even more stunning, at least to me, is what he says in verse 21. Because after 20 odd verses of describing pain and torment and bitterness and grief and sorrow and sadness, any single word that makes you feel like Eeyore, you could plug in there. And after 20 verses of that, what happens? Verse 21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Perhaps the most stunning turn in all of scripture is here just described for us. The very man who was just confessing the fact that he's forgotten what happiness is. He doesn't even know how to hope anymore because it's been vanished. Here he says, I'm choosing to call to mind. I'm choosing to remember something. And that something is returning the faint whisper of hope again. That's what you have to see in verse 21. This this. Decision, actually, of Jeremiah's. It's a decision. It's a deliberate action on his part. It's not just something that happens. It's not just accidental. He doesn't just sort of trip and fall on something. And there's a sign. There's this amazing word from the Lord. Actually, it's a deliberate decision on his part to choose to remember something. Even as his mind is flooded with anguish And affliction, there's something deeper, there's something truer that comes to mind. And what is that something? Well, verse 22. Well, let me back up. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And what is the thing he's calling to mind? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. (laughs) The thing that he's choosing to remember, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't look like it, is the fact that God's mercy never comes to an end. It never reaches its end point. It never has a finish line. It is an unending mercy that God has bestowed upon his people. And this never-ceasing, never-stopping mercy is what fills him with hope again. And he's choosing to call this to mind. See, this is the thing with, with suffering that I think is here revealed in very stark ways. Is the fact that suffering can very quickly lead you to believe something that's false about God. Because step back and and think about what he's just confessed and hear what he is now declaring here in this particular section. Was it really the Lord who was behind all of those atrocities? Was it really God who was the author of his people's grief? Had God really turned into a divine lion to come and devour his people like a predator? Or was that just what it felt like? Well, the answer is yes and no. Not a good answer, perhaps, but... There's certainly yes some element of judgment in what befell Jeremiah and Judah of course if you read the history that's recorded for us in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings it's a long elaborate history of why God's people are in the state that they're in <laughs> They had turned their backs on Yahweh for decades Even after prophet, after prophet had come and given to them the words of Yahweh himself. They had promised them, they had come and declared, thus saith the Lord, if you repent, there is a God who is merciful waiting for you. And if you look at all the contemporaries of Isaiah and Jeremiah and those who preceded them, there's all kinds of prophets who preach the same sort of message. So yes, there is an element of judgment in what has befallen his people. But to truly understand suffering and sorrow, we must also understand that God is not the author of it. God's not up in heaven just rubbing his hands together and saying, Man, I can't wait to see how I can afflict my people today. (laughs) That's not God. That's not the Lord that's revealed to us throughout all of Scripture. He he doesn't get any delight in seeing his people go through anguish and sorrow and grief. And in fact, Jeremiah says exactly that in verse 33. Which is perhaps my favorite verse in this whole text. Look at verse 33. For he, God, does not afflict from his heart or grieve from. The children of men. You might know this is sort of literary knowledge, if you will. But this particular chapter is made up of 66 verses. And in the Hebrew, uh, the first couple chapters are acrostics. Which in the Hebrew means they, are, they go through the Hebrew alphabet, each verse sequentially. And here we have this sort of uh, sort of uh, three sort of stands of chapter number three, which is just to say chapter four and five, both have 22, um, 22 verses, and one and two have 22 verses. And here chapter three is made up of 66. And here, right in the middle of that, in the middle of the book, in the middle of the chapter, we have what? We have, I would say, the most crucial truth in all of Jeremiah's laments, which is this, what? That God is a God whose heart is not filled with judgment. His heart is not filled with the idea that he takes delight in grieving his people. As he says again, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. This is the idea that he he does this reluctantly. He doesn't do it willingly. He doesn't jump at the chance that he gets to bring another wave of suffering on his people. Even though for Jeremiah, it felt the opposite. Don't you think? He's just spent 20 odd verses describing how horrible life is. How he's forgotten what happiness is. And indeed he said, God, why have you done this? Why have you turned on us? For Jeremiah, it felt like that. But their experience of grief, Judah's and Jeremiah's, of course, came about because of their own rebellion. Of course, that's what the history says. And With that rebellion, God withdrew his hand of blessing and protection from his people. He allowed this hardship as a result of his own people's turn against him. But even when we endure that withdrawal, even when we endure those times where God seems to withdraw His hand, that's not His eternal posture towards us. Again, look at verse thirty-one. For the Lord will not cast off forever; He will not leave us out to high and dry. He will not leave us hanging and abandon us in oblivion. Why? Because that's not His heart. Verse thirty-three. That's not what is most true about Him. What is most true about God? Verse thirty-two. But though he cause grief he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man for what fills God's heart is not judgment is not this idea that he wants to get back he's not a God who is always angry all the time he's not a curmudgeonly sort of God he is not a God who's just looking to vent his anger on people he is who? a God who is filled he's abundant in steadfast love and compassion. There is an infinite depth of mercy in the heart of God. And the point of the prophets, prophet after prophet, you know what their message is? Basically, you could summarize the message of all the prophets, minor or major, whoever it is. You could basically summarize it into this sort of simple statement that all it takes is the slightest pinprick of repentance and a flood of mercy will gush from the heart of Yahweh. That's who your Lord is. And even despite that message, what makes this bout of suffering so much more just incomprehensible is despite that, the people of God turned anyways. They were given that message that this is our God. And this is not some sort of unfounded sort of character of the Lord. From the very beginning of his self-revelation to his people, this is what God has wanted to get across. All the way back in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, what do we find? We find that this is who always, that this is always who Yahweh has been. Exodus 34.6 The Lord declares The Lord, the Lord A God merciful and gracious Slow to anger And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness Keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin And this is a description of God's heart He's telling Moses and the people of Israel In that particular context This is who I am and if you didn't get it, that same description of God, that same sort of uh, expression of God's truest heart is repeated no less than seven other times in the Bible. Again, if you, wanna, uh, if, you, if you didn't miss it before, it's as if the Bible is saying, here it is, here's who God is, don't miss this, pay attention to this. In Numbers chapter 14, it's repeated. Numbers chapter 9, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, Joel chapter 2, Nahum chapter 1, over and over again, we have the same description of of Yahweh, of Jehovah, that he is abounding in steadfast love, and he's slow to anger. Do you think God's trying to tell us something? Yeah. He's saying, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is the the truest description of who Yahweh is. That in the middle of suffering and sorrow, it is not he who has changed. And that's what gives us this hope. That's what reminds us of this mercy. I think it's fascinating to note how Jeremiah goes from that horrific view of God to saying that the Lord is good. Notice verse 24 of the text in Lamentations. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. He has just said that the Lord is like a lion and a bear. And here he's saying, the Lord is good it is good verse 26 that the one who should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord it is good for a man that he hear the yoke bear the yoke in his youth let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him let him put his mouth into the dust there may yet be hope let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults for the Lord will not cast off forever but though he cause grief he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men how can he he make that statement because he's been reminded of the mercy of God that fills the heart of God it's a heart that Is overflowing with steadfast love. That's what that word abundant means. It's just brimming and overflowing and it's overflowing and it cannot be stopped. It's a ceaseless stream of mercy in God's heart and his heart doesn't change. Who had changed in this tumultuous history of God's people? God's people had changed. Who had really turned their backs? God's people had turned their backs. Who hadn't changed? It was always Jehovah. In your midnight hours. When you are made to feel at your absolute lowest. And you too feel like Jeremiah. That God has suddenly gone on the aggressive. God has turned into the oppressor. When you feel that way. Call to mind the truth that he is a God who never changes. It's not he who wavers. It's not he who changes. It's not that his mercy has been pulled back. It's that we have turned our backs on him. This is who God is. He is always standing right with us and saying, fall into my merciful arms. You and I are made to endure just that. The darkest of days. Only when we realize that this mercy of God meets us right there in the darkness at midnight. That's where he finds us. That's where this gospel of grief rings out so clearly and so truly that that's where he shows up to give us his mercy. It's mercy at midnight. Mercy that comes When you realize that that's where he finds us. And that brings me to the third note in this gospel of grief. Not only do we have to go through the midnight, and not only is that precisely where the mercy of God finds us, but also we are given the promise of the morning. Because there's a particular beauty to that phrase in verse 23, perhaps, that you have put to memory. That the mercies of God, as he says, are new every morning. And this, of course, is alluding to this idea that they're constant, they're unchanging, they are unwavering. Every single time you wake up, you can count on the mercy of God. Every single time you wake, you can count on the sun to rise. And so Jeremiah is basically saying the same thing, that those who are suffering can count on the mercy of God to meet them right there. And this is not only Jeremiah's testimony, this is a testimony that fills the pages of Scripture. In fact, go with me to Psalm 143. Really, cool. I want you to see how often this idea of the morning is filled with messages of hope. Psalm one hundred and forty-three. Look at verse eight. The psalmist says, "This let me hear in the morning your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul." Go with me to Psalm one hundred, or excuse me, Psalm ninety-two. Back a few pages, Psalm 92, the psalmist there says the same thing. Psalm 92 verse 1, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Back a few pages, Psalm 90, verse 14. Notice again, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Go with me to Psalm 30. There's a couple others, but I'll skip ahead. Psalm 30, verse 5. Again, notice what the psalmist says. For his anger is but for a moment And his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Over and over again, the people of God were made to remember not only the mercy that found them at midnight, but the promise that the morning would come. That the midnight would, would it be made to, to fade away as the morning light begins to dawn. That's not just something that is meant to sound poetic. That is meant to be applied right to where we live. That our midnight seasons, as David has said in Psalm 30, don't last forever. God's favor does. As he says, Psalm 30, verse 5, God's favor is for a lifetime. Jeremiah has been right there. He's been right in that particular moment, in that circumstance. And in fact, back in our text, Lamentations 3, if you go back there, he uses a very fascinating sort of illustration from his own life in order to get this across. In verses 46 down through verse 54, Jeremiah returns to some words of despair. Words of Hopelessness. But this time he uses a real event from his own life to get this across. Notice what he says, verse 46. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Again, he's standing as the representative of Judah's grief. And he's reminding and speaking this into The world. And he says, Panic and pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. And he says, My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all of the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. This is not just poetry for Jeremiah. This is real. And back in chapter 38 of his prophecy, you have the story where Jeremiah is taken by his own people, the people of Judah. He's taken by them, seized by them, and thrown into a dungeon, into a pit. Because of his preaching, because of what he was saying. Jeremiah has been to a literal pit of despair a pit that was full of darkness a pit that was full of sadness and sorrow and yet here as he is telling us he is crying out to the lord verse 55 in that pit he says i called on your name o lord from the depths of the pit you heard my plea do not close your ear to uh, your ear to my cry for help you came near when i called on you you said do not fear You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. In the midst of all of that, when Jeremiah is in a literal pit of despair, he cries out to God and God hears him. And that's when God tells him, don't be afraid. And this is what revives and renews Jeremiah's hope. So much so that he is sure that God will take up his cause, uh, take up his people's cause. God will, <clears throat> will be the avenger, will be the vindicator for his people. It's worth noting that I think that these are the only recorded words of God in this entire song. The rest of this chapter is Jeremiah venting frustration and grief and sorrow. The only direct quote from God, if you will, are these three words, do not fear. Simple words, but significant words. And you might have heard before, and I, I, did, a, I did a study on this, that, that the, 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 the promise, fear not or don't be afraid, is repeated 365 times in the Bible. It's not. It's pretty close. It's around 100. But the truth still remains. It's the most often repeated promise of God. Fear not, do not be afraid. And to Jeremiah, the sufferer, these are the exact words that he needed. God, the God of heaven, comes close and he greets him with words that reminds him, do not be afraid. Trust in me i am hearing you and believe me the morning will come and why can we trust him why can we trust its god and you might be thinking the same thing that I, I it seems like this midnight is not going away it seems like it's incredibly prolonged My friends, you have the promise of God in front of you that yes, there is always a God who greets you in the midst of your darkness and despair. You have that promise in the word and that promise is none other than the person of Jesus himself. I, I, I couldn't help but think of this, phrase, this, this this verse from the Gospels. I'm going to read it. You can write it down and, and ponder it and chew on it. John chapter 16 and verse 20, has these incredible words, and I can't seem to turn to John. John chapter 16, verse 20. Jesus is talking to his apostles, and he says, "These amazing words," he says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament." But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. But notice. But your sorrow will turn into joy. If you remember the context. He's saying this a couple hours if you will. Before his crucifixion. And he's saying in a moment you are going to be sorrowful. Not uplifting words. Not raw, raw words to get his guys motivated, but he's telling them the truth. You're going to be sorrowful. Why? Because they were going to see their Lord pegged to a tree and dying. And the world would rejoice because they think they've won. The world will Laugh. The world will clap their hands because they have been deceived into thinking that Satan and his cronies have won because God's son has been crucified on a tree. But he says, your sorrow will turn into joy. Why? Because he knew that that death could not hold him. And that midnight would not last forever. There would come the morning of the resurrection. And then suddenly all the sorrow that they had once experienced would turn into joy. And this is the promise of God for each and every single one of us here this morning. The same promise is given to you. That you have a God who comes near, who comes close, who greets you in the ashes, in the midst of a life that has been wrecked, in the midst of lives where all it feels like is, man, I wish I could go back to the way it was. Because everything is different now. Everything is messed up now. How can I keep moving forward? And when you feel like that, and you feel as if God has turned his back on you, and more than that, when you feel as if God has purposefully made this season come about, there is a word of promise that fills the words of God. There's the promise. That he is the God who comes near into the midst of our midnight and misery. Into the midst of our depression and despair. Into the midst of when we are at our lowest, at our worst, at our darkest. And that's when God finds us. That's where God greets us. That's where he shows up and he says, I am the Lord. And I am turning your sorrow into joy. That's where he shows up. That's where he finds us. The gospel of grief assures us that there is one who feels our grief with us. Because he's endured our grief for us. Jesus was telling that word, those words to his apostles. Because he knew what he was about to do. And he knew what it would look like. And the same words apply to Jeremiah that he is greeted by a God who greets him in the midst of the pit. And it's fascinating to me that I think that these words don't lead to Jeremiah suddenly being made to escape out of this dark and depressing season. The midnight might seem long and it might continue sometimes, but Jesus is our guarantee that there is mercy to be found even at midnight. And he is our promise. He is our assurance that no matter what, no matter what you are going through, there is someone who is with you, who is for you right in the middle of it. That's this God. He is the God of our laments, the God of our cries, where it feels as if we can't go on. But there in the midst of that he gives us the gospel of grief and he says those solemn but hopeful words do not fear for my mercy will never come to an end and my faithfulness will see the morning rise my friends these are words for you Whatever your midnight might feel like. the loss of a job, a loss of a friend. Frustration with a spouse or a friend. Whether you're going through a season where you've been greeted seemingly by constant wave of diagnoses after diagnoses of bad health. And it seems like you can't just turn the corner. (laughs) Whatever your midnight might look like, it's the same type of mercy that God gives you. It's mercy that never comes to an end. Mercy that never ceases. Mercy that is the faithful love of God. This is the gospel of grief, my friends. May you be given the grace and the mercy wherever you might be this morning. Hope in the Lord. Do not fear, for he is with you. Let us pray.